Blog Talk Radio. Radio, and I'm Marcia Joyner, host of Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with our producer, Marty Oakley. Thank you for joining us this evening. Towards the end of the program, we'll accept calls with questions or comments, and if you have something that you want to say, select one on your phone at that time, and you'll be put in a queue so that you can speak. Betrayed by Hospice broadcast was started to allow victims' families and professionals to share information about the dangers of trusting the medical profession without verifying. We encourage you to research the resources that will be provided during this program. A background is hospice was founded by Cicely Saunders in 1967, and it was meant to minimize pain and suffering of those who were actively dying and could no longer be treated with medications. Now, why is that important? Because it wasn't meant to drug someone into a coma and hasten their death with toxic drugs, starvation, and dehydration. But that's what's happening today. Our elderly are literally being called and manipulated into enrolling in hospice with promises of better care, showers, sitter service, meals, a nurse comes to you in the comfort of your home, and it won't cost you a dime. They will tell you whatever they think you want to hear to get you enrolled in their system. They'll say you can continue your medications, and if you happen to ask if they will hasten your death, like we did about my mom, they'll tell you, no, we wouldn't do that. So it kind of sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It is. So let's talk about that free. You pay into Medicare and your health insurance your entire life to take care of yourself in your older years. So it isn't free. They're not doing something for you. No one ever knowingly signed up for hasten death. They were fed lies and omissions, and no one says, do you want to take these drugs and here are the side effects? Death by toxic cocktail, starvation, and dehydration is not a way that anybody would want to die. And I hear often from people and they say, well, they told me my loved one died peacefully in their sleep. With the drugs that are given, how could anyone in hospice be awake? And there's nothing peaceful about it. Those of us who have witnessed this will never be the same, and we cannot unsee what we saw. The raw grief remains the guilt. The cost of their life is too high a price. And if this happened to your loved one, you need to notify the director of hospice, medical directors, hospital boards, and anybody else you can think of and make your complaint about your loved one's hastened death. It may make a difference one day if we can ever crack the doors open for justice. Vitus.com is a large hospice conglomerate, and if you go to their page, you will see all the things that qualify someone to enroll. 
but does that mean it's right for you or your loved one? When you can receive the care that is needed by continuing your current regime? Today, it's not just for cancer or end-stage disease, and it isn't meant to minimize pain if you happen to be in pain. ALS, dementia, COPD, congestive heart failure are just some of the illnesses that they list. If you go to the hospital three times a year, you get a frequent flyer tag. If you can't feed or dress yourself or you become incontinent, which, by the way, could be caused from a UTI, that they're not going to check. All of this and other criteria will qualify you, and they make it sound wonderful. And you've heard, beware of those bearing gifts, beware. And you can look at their site. They encourage people to enroll in hospice sooner. Why? So you can die sooner and save Medicare money? The price we pay is too high. Only God knows when someone will die. But hospice knows because they make it happen. Always remember, knowledge is power. And as I do on each program, I provide some helpful resources. Halovoice.org advocates for the rights of the medically vulnerable. They have a helpline you can call with questions or concerns (laughs) if your loved one is in the facility or you're considering it. That number, 888-221-4256. And if you're aware of the dangers and you want to help, they're always looking for volunteers. They have a life-affirming medical proxy document that may save your life or your loved ones one day. Another resource, Michelle Young Dewars was a hospice respiratory therapist who wrote an excellent book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, which is appropriately titled, Michelle exposes what happened behind the doors of hospice, the signing quotas, promises made, but not kept, and how patients were betrayed by the very people who were supposed to be compassionate. She is a true warrior speaking out against the treatment of elderly and disabled. Ron Panzer, another hospice nurse whistleblower, wrote Stealth Euthanasia, Health Care Tyranny, which can be downloaded for free because he wants people to see the truth and protect your loved ones. LifeLegalDefenseFoundation.org has access to pro-life attorneys in most states if you're trying to get your loved one out of a bad situation in a facility. Euthanasia Prevention Coalition is another excellent resource. They have one in Canada and one in the USA. There is a Facebook group, Murdered by Hospice, which was founded by Liz Eisner in 2016 after her husband, Alan, was murdered by hospice. When I joined the group in 2018, I was number 140. Today, we have over 1,700 members, and we are growing daily because people are starting to see the truth, and we're standing up. Members are able to safely talk to others who have experienced the same tragedy of their loved ones being murdered by hospice, and they seek advice, and they're given compassion. And I'm happy to say that Some people have found us in time, and they've not enrolled in hospice, and they've been able to save their loved one. And that's what we're about. That's what we're trying to do, warn people before it's too late. In our group, we have a tab with files, and we provide some excellent information and resources in that. 
And I know I'm talking quick, and I know these are a lot of resources, but if you go to Blog Talk Radio or Marty Oakley's site at the bottom of this, you can make comments, and I will be happy to give this information to you again. Um, recently, Tucker Carlson had Charles Camosi, an author and professor from Canada, who spoke about a man who was euthanized, and his only health issue, he had hearing loss, and he was euthanized. Our loved ones are being euthanized without knowledge or consent in hospices. So anybody who's listening who has a loved one to hospice, that's lost a loved one, if you reach out to Tucker Carlson and let him know it's happening around the country, we might be able to make an impact and warn even more people. Dr. Phil is planning to have a program about euthanasia, and people need to understand it doesn't have to be legalized in the states because it is happening daily under the guise of hospice compassionate care. And if we don't speak out and warn others, it will continue. Fulton J. Sheen said it best, the refusal to take sides on great moral issues is in itself a decision. It is a silent acquiescence to evil. The tragedy of our time is that those who still believe in honesty lack fire and conviction, while those who believe in dishonesty are full of compassion, conviction. Which will you be? Silence is not golden when people's lives are at stake. Tonight, our guest speaker is a member of Murder by Hospice. Her name is Kelly Sue Parker Peavy, and she will share with us the tragic story of her dad, Paul Parker, who was 78 when he recently died on May the 21st, 2022. And keep in mind when she's talking that many patients do have illnesses and comorbidities, but does that mean that anybody has the right to make a decision that they would be better off dead and to play a part in making that happen? Of course not. So I'm going to turn it over to Kelly. But Kelly, I'd like for you to give us a little bit of background on you and how you became involved on seeking justice and looking for a sign and how your background takes you out into the public where you have a chance to spread the word more after tonight. Aw, thank you so much, Marsha and Marty, for having me on your show tonight. Um, it was by fluke that I found you. Um, I don't even know how I found you in my, my news feed on social media. And I put a little post out, and uh, I have to tell you, since taking in my parents, um, I was, when Dad passed away, I was paralyzed. I knew a lot of stuff going into the situation that we went through, but I was, after his death, um, so many things just started hitting me and I started doing a lot more research and I was just completely paralyzed. What is my next direction? What do I do? How do I use my voice? How do I find my voice? Um, and I found you all on uh, social media just by fluke and you reached out to me and said, Hey, I, you know, I'd like to hear your story. So we spent what, two and a half hours on the phone together. Yes. Um, yes, ma'am. We did. So I, I totally appreciate that. And, uh, I've been praying. Um, I am a patriot of this country and I believe in God and country. And I kept saying, send me a sign. And, um, tonight is his four, four month anniversary of his death. And, um, I think that was the sign because this was the date you gave me. And I said, yep, let's do it on that date. So here I am. Um, For 24 years, I've been a real estate broker. I live right outside of the Bangor, Maine area. 
and uh, I work at Next Home Experience. Very proud, great company, great real estate agency growing. I am in and out of homes daily. Um, I see a lot that's going on. I see a lot of um, people in my situation. I'm going to be 53 in November, and they're wondering how they're going to take care of their their parents or a great-grandmother or just anyone that's gotten sick. Um, And since everything's happened with my family, um, I've talked to an insurance agent person on my car, and we just happened to start stumbling, and she's taking care of her you know, grandfather, and just the stories are starting to come out, and I'm just, I'm running into it everywhere. So I said, you know, this is, I need to do this. I need to shift my, my life a little bit and start giving time to using this voice and bringing awareness to what we went through. Um, and being in real estate, I mean, I sell a lot, probably 25, 30 houses a year, and I'm in at a home showing, you know, 10, one couple can look at 10 or 12 houses. So you multiply that by three or four clients a week, you know, you're in a lot of homes. So I see what's going on in homes and what people are doing, um, rubbing pennies together, keeping their loved ones from having to go to the hospital or into a facility to be taken care of. So my hat goes off to them, and uh, now I realize more what they've gone through or what they're going to or going to go through because I've been through it. So um, I've had a very blessed life. Um, I was a singer, songwriter, musician. I've traveled all over the country. Um, was very well known in the music industry, very proud, never burnt a bridge that I know of, um, and worked with some of the best of the best. Sean Rich opened up for them, Big and Rich, you name it, I've opened for them. So I have a lot of contacts, and maybe this is where my life is going to lead me, is maybe I can reach out to some people who have bigger voices than mine and bring awareness as well. So who knows? We'll see what happens. (laughs) So... um, I don't know where you want me to start from when my parents moved in. Is that how you want me to I go? I do. Yes, I do. <clears throat> okay. So back in early 2020, uh, just right, right when COVID hit, um, my parents, we realized that my dad was getting more ill. He had COPD. He had uh, very bad farmer's lungs. Um, and his lungs actually was what we thought was going to take him out originally because he was just his lungs were just so bad um he had cancer in his right lung he also had um he's a diabetic he um also had congestive heart failure he had afib they could not put him down to uh shock his heart back into rhythm so we dealt with that um my husband and i started looking for a house that would accommodate all of us and we found a property and um, moved my parents in in the fall of 2020. Um, and then from there, um, found the new doctors down here. We had a couple doctors that were just, uh, I, was, I went to every single appointment with him. Um, and it just, uh, some of the doctors were not great. And I would get a feeling from them and go, nope, guess time to find a new one. We ended up finding some really good ones specialist for his diabetes, specialist for his heart, um, specialist like primary care doctor. Um, And he was, once we moved them in, he did really good for a couple months, but he would have flare-ups in his lungs. So that was when he he would get the flare-ups is when he'd end up having to go in the hospital. And every time he went in, the doctors never consulted with his primary. They never, you know, they, they do their own thing in the hospital. They look at his chart and go, he's on this, 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 and this. But they never, you know, I could have told them the day that he went into the hospital, this is what's going on. But they don't want to hear it from me. They want to come up with their own conclusion, which takes four to five to seven days. You know, so they keep you in the hospital for a long time. 
And then they release you and go, yep, you, you know, you just had a flare-up when it's all said and done. But while they're there, they put you on different regimen, different regimen for medications, not the ones you're normally taking, or they, they uh, change the dosages that you are using. So then when you get out of the hospital, now it's not doctor's appointments to get you back on to the regimen you were on. Um, or you're talking to the cardiologist and they're like, no, 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 we don't want him taking this. He needs to be on, back on this. So it was just a nightmare after nightmare. So we ended up having a great primary who um, I had a long talk with her and said, is there any way possible, you know, this is what he's going in the hospital for. Is there any way possible we could put him on like a low dose of prednisone, which I don't like, but it helped with his flare-ups. And she said, absolutely. So he would use it. Um, he never abused it, but he would use it, and um, it helped him from staying in the ho- from having to go in the hospital like every two two months or so. So we had a good year of him not having to really go to the hospital. Um, when he did move down here, he was told he had a year or less to live because of the cancer. Um, he did immunotherapy, chose not to do anything else. Um, it didn't really work. Um, and so he stopped the immunotherapy and they said, you know, he didn't have much longer. Well, he lived another year after that. So (laughs) he kind of beat the odds almost into a two year period here with what they told him. Um, the last few times, um, he went into the hospital. Um, it was basically for, um, urinary tract infections. And the, the last time he went in, in March, of March 27th, 2022, he went in because he was having urgency with um, having to go to the bathroom all the time. So the primary said, we can't do a catheter. You're going to need to go in and have one in, in, in place. So he went in for that, and he went in for swelling in his legs. So they kept him, I think he was there, seven or eight, and then they released him. And before they released him, they had pulled my mom aside and said, hey, you know, do you guys have anything in place for hospice? Um, you know, they come in, they do a great job. They help with your medications. They will help with bathing. They'll help with meals. They do this, they do that. And mom was like, no, you know, we don't have anything in place. And, you know, so she came home and we talked about it. So um, we called a couple different agencies. We met with uh, one of the local hospice companies, which was actually Kinder Care, they're nationwide. And we um, sat with them. I had a long list of questions, um, literally like two pages long of just all these questions about equipment, you know, how it works, how many times a day do they come, how long are they here, what do they actually do. They answered all our questions. Do we get to keep all our normal doctors? Um, his primary has the final say on everything. Yes, you know, everything is yes, 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 yes. And um, we felt really comfortable, so we, we signed. And they said that their services for are for up to a year. So even if your father does not pass away in that one year, you get reevaluated at the end of that time frame. And if he needs the services, then they reapply, I guess, through Medicare. So um, I guess that's how it works. So anyway, so that's what we did. So we signed the bottom line, and they said, do you need anything? We'll get that to you tomorrow. We signed on a Tuesday, which was April 5th. Um, the 6th, they were supposed to have a hospital bed delivered for us um, and some other, uh, some other equipment and never showed up. And I'm like, you know, mistakes happen, whatever. You know, it's not a big deal. So I called them on Thursday morning saying, hey, you know, the bed never showed up and, you know, you know, no one has been over to the house. Oh, we'll work on that. 
Well, in the process of that phone call, I'm also getting a call from the hospital. Um, and it's his doctor that he'd been working with since he'd been in the hospital. And they said, yeah, we're not real comfortable, you know, releasing your dad today. His, his heart rate since 4 o'clock in the morning has been all over the map, and we just don't want to release him yet. I know his heart is set on coming home, but we just, we're not comfortable. I'm not comfortable, is what she said, um, releasing him. And I said, well, you know, he's pretty adamant about coming home. He's a very stubborn, you know, 78-year-old man. So I was like, well, do you want to talk to him again? She's like, yep, I'll do that. So she was going to go back and talk to him. And I don't know, an hour went by, then I get another phone call, and she's like, um, do you, uh, your dad still wants to go home, but I'm not comfortable releasing him. And I was like, and is your mom there? You know, what, what should we do? Should we have a meeting? With, you know, should we come in and have a meeting? And so my mom was getting her hair done at the time, and I called my mom and said, you know, they don't know what to do. They, dad wants to leave, and they don't want to release him. On the third phone call was when they told me that hospice had showed up, and that they were telling him, telling them. See, I didn't know to tell them that we had hired with hospice. I didn't know. I didn't know that that was something they needed to know when I was originally speaking with them. Um, but anyway, so she said, "Hospice is here. You're you're going to have your dad going to hospice." And I said, "Well, it's in home hospice where they come and you know take and take care of you, you know, and help out." And she goes, "You do know what that means, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, you know, what's the big deal?" Like to me at the time, now knowing. I had no idea what she was saying to me when she said that. So, so can anyway, I interject? So can yes. I interject at this point? Okay, so what they told you is they were going to, you know, bring the hospital bed out there. We have a nurse that's going to come see you. You know, they'll give him showers. He can still mm-hmm. take the same medication. He can still be with the same doctor. And these are the promises that I talked about earlier and that Michelle Dewars talks about in her book, Killing for Profit, they make any promise to get you to enroll. That is the name of the game is enrollment. Now, you've you've already found out that the bed's not there when they said it was going to be. And and it did not arrive mm -hmm. arrive until that Thursday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they were trying to release him at at 10 o'clock in the morning, um, coming home from the hospital on you know, through an ambulance with the EMTs. So we had to keep delaying that because we didn't have a bed to put him at. So, you know, because his normal bed wasn't going to work anymore. So we were, we were actually getting a hospital bed so it would be, you know, more remote for him to help him get out of bed. It, it, you know, it goes up and down and it moves you back and forward and it helps with his breathing when he's laying down at night. So they were supposed to get that and never showed up until the Thursday at 3 o'clock. So by the time they, the hospital, the doctor hung up with me, that was probably around 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and she said, okay, hospice has been here. We've had a meeting. And at the time, I didn't really think much of it, but now I look back and go, why weren't we present for the meeting? Why, you know, why, why did hospice step in and not have us present? We're family. You know, if the doctor really mm-hmm. is adamant about him not coming home, then maybe he shouldn't come home, you know? So anyway, so he was released. He came home by ambulance they got him in the house and he was wide awake he's talking a mile a minute he is laughing he um wanted to sit in the living room instead of going into the bedroom um he wanted to watch tv he ordered pizza for dinner that night he was um catching up on episodes of walking dead he was you know calling people his sister saying he was home i mean talking just like you and i and so that's thursday night 
Friday I wasn't here. My mom was. And Friday the first nurse came in um, and for him checked his vitals, went through his meds, whatever they did, you know, which wasn't much actually. And they never were here longer than maybe 30, 40 minutes. And then you never saw them again. And they always made you sign off. And you don't even know what you're signing because it's on a little tablet and it's all black. So you're just signing your name. So like whatever. So t- the, the one nurse came in and, um, and left. Well, then Saturday our weekend nurse came in and because the nurse on Friday changed his bandages on his legs because he had weeping legs from his diabetes, um, he said they look great. I'm not going to change them. I'll change them on Sunday. So Saturday before he left, he leaned over to dad, and he was here for about an hour, and he leaned over and said, hey, Paul, how's your breathing doing? And he said, good, you know. And he's like, are you having any problems breathing? And dad said, no, not really. He goes, only when I cough. Now, my dad's been living with us for almost two years now, and my mother's taken care of him for almost 60 years. You know, they were married almost 60 years. And he's saying, you know, yeah, yes, in his mind, now I have to back up, he has partial dementia starting because he's 78 he had cognitive issues um where he might say i want an orange but he really wanted orange juice he did it confused but i mean he can still have a normal conversation like you and i it was you know he just made little mistakes here and there along the way but he was pretty good about knowing his meds when his medications need to be given he knew when he had to you know his blood sugar was getting low he knows that you know to take it look at what the numbers were, I need to eat a snack. Like, he, we had a huge regimen. We had a whole book. I mean, every day we logged in, every single medication, what time we gave it, what he ate, everything. I have It's a thick, huge book. So that Saturday, John, the nurse asked my dad, you know, how you, how's your breathing? And he explained to him, I'm fine, but when I have coughing spells with his COPD, he, you know, he would cough really hard. His face would turn beet red and purple. And after that, when he has those spells, which he's been having them forever, that he would have to he uses oxygen a little bit to help him get back to his, his normal breathing rate. So anyway, so the nurse said, well, I have something for you if you want. He goes, it helps really good with breathing. So he offered him morphine, a very low dosage of morphine. He also offered a lorazepam, and he also offered a drug, and I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, but it's called Hastiam Yemen. It's H-Y-O-S-C-Y-A-M-I-N-E. And at the time, I had no idea what these were. I'm thinking this is normal for hospice to offer these things to help him breathe. So I'm not questioning anything that's going on. I so, think that's, and I'll have to check, but um, I think that's the soplamine, and it's probably something to keep them from choking. And it's supposed it to dry up the I have, I have since found out that the I call it the Hastiana because okay. I can't really pronounce it, but I call it the Hastiana drug. And what it is, it's okay. a very small, it looks like a, a, a vitamin E capsule. It's a very, very tiny, clear yellow pill, like a tannish yellow pill. And it actually um, gets rid of secretions in your lungs. It dries right. up secretion or mucus in your lungs. Right. So I didn't think, and at the time I had no idea what these drugs were, so I didn't really know the difference. And I knew what morphine was, but the other ones I really didn't know. Um, And my dad's on a host of other drugs, so I had no idea. You know, they had a whole list of his drugs. So I'm assuming these are nurses, these are hired professionals to come into your home to help you um, with your loved one, you know. So I'm under the impression they've gone through his medical history, they know what they can give him, what they can't give him, what the dosage is, they've spoken to his doctors, you know, this is what, everything's 
kosher. So they start him. It was about 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon, and that was when he got his first dose of all three of those drugs. Now, this was 2 o'clock, two days into being on home hospice. By and Monday he's not in morning, pain. I'm sorry? Not, is he in pain? Do you say I'm no. in pain? No, he okay. was, like I said, he was talking like you and I. He was fine. There was nothing wrong with this man other than, you know, he's, he is dying. He's, he was given this last time in March when he was, or April 7th when he was released. He was given by palliative care at the hospital, zero to six months to live. You know, and we knew that. We've known this for a long time that he's dying, and we knew he was very ill. He had comorbidities, you know, so we knew that. We were, as a family, we were not embracing it, but we are embracing the fact that this is what we're going to be dealing with in the near future, you know. Right. So but there is we no, understood there's that. no time on that. There, right. You know, it and he could live longer six than months six months. A year. That's right. right. Absolutely. That's right. And he had already surpassed what they originally told us he was going to live anyway by almost two years. So, you know, and he, you know, was at the time he wasn't really walking because he'd been in the hospital for seven or eight days. So he with was no, sitting with in the living no rehab. No rehab, which is no another rehab. thing we can get back to. Because mm-hmm. theoretically, when they released him then, he technically should have gone to rehab, a skilled facility to help him walk um, and get, build his strength up because he had been in bed for seven or eight days. Correct. And that's something in hindsight that I understand now but didn't know then, I guess I should say. So um, now we're going into the first weekend with hospice. On Sunday, the nurse comes back, and he's changing the bandages, and we find um, a big black hole on my dad's foot. And the skin is all black. It's dried up, but it's black, I mean jet black. And it's a big hole in the top of his foot, like just the base of where his toes were. And the nurse took pictures and said, ooh, I don't know about this. He's like, I don't, I've never seen this. It doesn't look good. Um, I'm going to take some pictures and consult with, you know, with you know management hospice or whatever well monday comes and at the same time my mother's been dosing my dad with because they told her him to if he has any problems breathing you can give him they they pre-filled syringes to give to him that he puts under his tongue when they give you the dosage um and then the lorazepam and then the the hasiana drug so sunday he my dad starts to decline a little bit like he's not as happy he's um, more agitated, he's angry, uh, you know, if you just looked at him the wrong way, he's like, what's wrong with you? You know, he's just super agitated. Nothing made him happy. He didn't, he was starting to not really wanting to eat his normal meals. Um, he didn't even want his junk food, like just nothing. He just was very cranky. He, he slept a lot. Um, Sunday night, it all kicked in. And Sunday night, every, I'm, I'm not joking you, every five seconds, he was like, Gene, give me water. Gene, give me water. Gene, give me water. I had no idea because my mom and I switch off every 24, every other day. So it was her night to be up with him or, you know, if he hollers for help in the other room, she would run. So it was her night. I had no idea he'd been up all night because I was sleeping and didn't know. Come Monday morning, I had set up a whole bunch of appointments with hospice um, and with private care. So I had Loving Touch Care come in, um, which is private home care. And um, so I had all these appointments set up for Monday. Well, let me tell you, it was like the shock of my life. I woke up, came upstairs, was making coffee, and I look at my mother, and she had been up the whole night. I look at my father. He's drooling. He can barely sit in a chair. He, he's falling over. He's agitated. He can't hold a fork. He won't eat. 
he is rolling his eyes back in his head. And I'm like, what on earth happened? And she's like, I don't know. And she's, she's crying. And I'm like, Ma, why didn't you wake me up? And she's like, well, I didn't want to bother you up the night before. Da, 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 da. So I'm like, well, I'm calling doctor. I said, I don't know if this is right. And I said, what have they been giving him for drugs again? So she tells me. So I had never met this doctor at the hospital, but he was wonderful. I had spoken to him a couple times over the phone when my dad was, was before he was released. And he works in palliative care. And he, I called him, and I left him a message, and I was like, hey, you know, can you just give me a call and you get a moment? So the secretary said, you know, she'd get back to me. So I don't know. It was probably uh, the loving touch care lady had come in on Monday. Um, she was here for her first appointment. It really, honestly, I can't swear, but it was just a nightmare. She just, you know, I, every five seconds I was getting up from the table. I couldn't even have a decent conversation with her. I couldn't find out what was going on. You know, then 10 o'clock comes and now we have the Monday nurse coming through the door who was first here last Friday. And um, before I allowed her into the living room, I asked her to come sit at the table. And I said, on Friday, when you were here, did you do dad's bandages? And she said, yes. And I said, did you see the black hole that was on his foot? And she said, yes. Now she's sitting in front of another person right now at our kitchen table. And I looked at her straight in the face and I said, why didn't you tell my mother? I said, I wasn't here, but why didn't you just bring up the fact that, hey, you know, he's, I go, the nurse over the weekend thought it looked horrible, and he was very concerned about it. She looked me straight in the face and said, we are not preventative care, Kelly. We are hospice. And I almost, I, I had to take a deep breath for a second because I couldn't comprehend what she had just said. It took me a second, and then I said, are you telling me that if my dad has a black hole on his foot, he's a diabetic? that could get infected or his foot is already dying at some point on his foot is you're telling me you're not going to tell us about it or you're, or you're not going to help him. And she looked at me again and she said, we are, we are not preventative care. We are hospice. And I swear God intervened at that moment because my cell phone went off and it was the hospital. So I knew, I knew the number. I went out, I told her to wait. I went outside and it was the doctor. And I said, hey, you know, I hate to bother you. I know you're not my dad's doctor anymore. But I said, I have some things that are going on. I don't know who to trust. This is all a new process to us. I have some questions, and I want to tell you what's going on. So I told him what had happened from time dad's release, how dad was to where he was on Monday morning by, you know, 10, 1030 in the morning. And he went, no, no, no. He literally yelled into the phone and said, he is, those are end-of-life medications. Get him off those medications now. And he said, is the hospice nurse there? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, let me talk to her. So I you know, turned around, went back in the house, had him on speaker. And he literally told this nurse, I'm sorry, I don't mean to step on any toes, but get Paul off those meds. He is not at end-of-life. He should not be on any of that. And she kind of had a little bit of a uh, tiff moment, and um, they finished their conversation. We hung up. She got up from the table, and she went into the living room, and I finished up with Amy from Loving Touch Care Private Care, and another 20 minutes or so, I walked into the living room, and here I am walking in, leaning up against the wall, my mom sitting on a stool in front of my dad, and the nurse who just spoke to this doctor is getting ready to leave and says, Hey Paul, how's your breathing today? Now my father literally 
couldn't speak. He was drooling. He couldn't even put a straw in his mouth because he was so jacked up on this medication and morphine because of them giving it to us and them telling us how often we should be giving it to him, which we wrote in our book, like normal, in our log. He couldn't even make a decision. And she leans over with her hands on her kneecaps and is in his face, and she says, Paul, do you want a little bit more, more morphine to help you breathe? And I looked at her. My mother put her hands in her head and just, like, held her head. And I looked at the nurse and said, get out of my house. Kindred care, and said, I do not want this nurse ever coming back into my home, ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Find us a new nurse. And that started the next three weeks of kind of craziness. Dad was in hospice home care for 21 days. Um, and from there forward, it was just multiple things. Uh, we had asked for a wheelchair uh, the first week, so that would be somewhere around the 11th. Monday the 11th was when Dad was in his craziness of, from all the medications. It took him about a week to recover from what had happened with all those medications. Um, and we had asked for a wheelchair because when he came home from the hospital, he couldn't walk and he was decided to be in the chair. Now, my husband, who's six, two, um, almost what, 185 fit black belt, totally in shape between him, myself and my mother, we couldn't even pick my father up to take him from the living room chair to his bedroom's bed. So we needed a wheelchair. It took them 11 days to deliver us a wheelchair from hospice. Actually, the weekend nurse told us, well, maybe you could just rent one. And I'm like, isn't this part of your services, like durable equipment? Right. Says it right in your book. 11 -hmm. days. My father had to go on medication to help for his muscles and his butt because his butt was so sore from being in a recliner chair for 11 days. That's how long it took him. So there's one issue. The same week that he came out of his craziness from all the medications, He was complaining of his arm, which swelled up three times the size of his left arm. And we think it was from the port that they had put in the hospital. We thought maybe he had a blood clot. None of the nurses that came in thought it was a big deal. They're, yeah, there's a few lumps there, but, and I'm like, well, what do we do? Do do you scan it? Do you have somebody come to the house and image it? Like what's going, you know, what happens from here? Oh no, they don't do anything. Um, And he couldn't use his arm. I have pictures of everything three times the size of his arm, uh, of his other arm. Um, so that was that week, his arm. Going into the second week, uh, we had issues with never having, now we're going Easter weekend. Um, they don't have supplies. I went out and spent over $300 at Walmart and made a, 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 like a tote that fit underneath his bed filled with supplies because every time they came, they didn't have tape. They didn't have bandages. They didn't have this. They didn't have that. I swear. I, I just, I've never seen anything like it. And I, I, and what do you do? You're in the moment. You can't fire them right away. You can't, you know, we're so overwhelmed with the care that we have to give my father or any, you know, person that's ill like that, that you don't think straight. You're sleep deprived. You, that's right. You, there's just multiple, and multiple you trusted, things. You trusted what they told you. They made absolutely the things they would do. And they're not following through because no. they already know what they're going to do. Their intent is to drug your dad until a coma and to end his life. And mm-hmm. you got in well, the way of that. The nurse on that Monday did tell us, um, the one that we fired, we, she did say, well, because when she first got there, I said, you know, I don't know what's going on, but my dad is like, he didn't come home like this. 
I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's the medications that they started over the weekend or what. He's having a reaction to it or what, what's going on or, it's, you know, it's being mixed with other medications. Maybe something isn't working right. And she said, well, you know, Kelly, they sometimes decline really fast when they come out of the hospital. If they're in hospice, they certainly do. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. I've done more research since his passing. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. So week two, we finally get, uh, 11 days later, we finally get, uh, and, and this is under management. Now, I called management from e- uh, Easter weekend, and two of the night, uh, the manager who always said, here's my cell phone, call me 24-7, Easter Sunday weekend, um, I'm sorry, can this wait till Monday? I literally have text messages that say this to me. I'm busy with family. Like just, and I'm, you know, it was just questions about his health. Like something's not, something isn't right, you know? And no, they're too busy. Like, so they weren't, they definitely do not do what they say they're going to do. And, you know, I know things can go awry when you hire a company and it's, you know, you're working with new people, you're trying to understand their process. They're trying to understand you. You're acclimating together to try and work together. But it seems like every single day there was something that went wrong with this hospice company. Um, And it just, it didn't get better. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So nobody could find out what was going on with his arm. Um, We ended up talking to primary. Primary was like, well, you could end hospice services and go to the hospital to emergency. I checked. Um, And dad's opt not to do that because he hates the hospital. So he's like, nope, I don't want to do that. Next thing you know, um, the following week, he is, um, uh, we know when he's starting to get like a urinary tract infection, which he, he got often from a lot of the medication. Um, and he ended up, uh, we thought his urine started to change. He did have a catheter. Um, his color, the urine in, in his, um, in the bag, um, in the Foley ended up being, um, a lot darker. So we brought it to the nurse's attention. You know, he doesn't look the normal, you know, should we, do like a urine analysis and send it over to the lab. And the nurse told me, um, I don't really do that. And I was like, what do you mean you don't do that? Like you don't have something to take a copy, you know, some of his urine and drop it at the lab. I mean, I thought it said in the book that you guys do this, 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 and this. No, we don't do that. Uh -uh. So I didn't have anything in the house. I'm sorry. That is is giving them treatment and they don't do that. They won't test for a UTI. They won't treat it with an antibiotic. Right. So I and ended up calling way, his primary. I'm sorry. Let me just say, with the UTI, you can get, a, um, I believe it's by AZO, A-Z-O, at CVS or Walgreens. You can get a kit and you can test your own loved one's urine at your house and see whether or not it turns pink and how dark it is. You can determine if your loved one has a UTI by going to the drugstore yourself and not messing with the doctor. So I just want mm-hmm. our listeners to know that. Well, I didn't okay. know that. <laughs> I well, wish I had, but, but I did not know that. Well, so yeah, I I mean, used, that's what I'm I saying. Have... You don't know what you don't know. And right. they absolutely count on the fact that we didn't study all this because we thought we could trust them. What we now know too late is we can't trust them. No. Nope. Nope. So now we're in like what week two or three, and he's not feeling good. He doesn't have a fever. He doesn't have any symptoms of a cold, but his urine is changing color a tad. So we, you know, and we're we are alert to these things. So we, I ended up using one of my dog um, 
that you can capture. It's like a sanitized little, you know, um, I don't even know what tray. you do. Yeah, you rip off the cover yeah. and, you know, it's got a little tab on it. And so, and I took some of his yarn and I dropped it off at the lab. Well, they called back on, this was on a Thursday. They called back on Friday and they say, yep, he's got a urinary tract infection. And um, we don't know what type. So we're going to put him on an antibiotic, um, Cipro. Um, it's a high potent one and, you know, it should clear it up. And we're like, okay. Well, before they even prescribed the drug they called me back a few hours later and said because they said they were going to send a prescription over then they called me back and said eh you can't really give Cipro with his heart medications so it interferes with it so we're not going to put him on that we're going to put him on a different antibiotic so we said okay so I went and picked it up Friday evening we started him on the on an antibiotic um, Friday Friday Saturday Sunday into Monday well over the weekend he did great he I mean he was not feeling good, but he wasn't, like, you know, like, laying in bed, not being able to move kind of thing. Well, Monday comes, and they said, yep, we've got the type of urinary tract infection, and he needs to be on Cipro. So we need to take him off the other antibiotic and put him on Cipro. And they said, these are the side effects. It's going to make his arms go numb. He's going to have weakness in his legs, He's, you know, and his arms are going to go weak. Um, it's going to make it, if he's diabetic, it's going to make his blood sugars go high, um, delusional, uh, you name it, diarrhea, it's, this is what's going to happen. So um, we were kind of prepared. I looked the drug up online. I read all the side effects. Um, but no one ever told me you're not supposed to give this drug to, you know, it, that it really messes with elderly. So I didn't mm-hmm. realize that. It just, I, it just gave me the basic facts about it and side effects. So that's all I knew. Um, come Monday night... Um, my father was, uh, basically in a bed and could not move, could not talk. He, by Tuesday, he was even worse. By Wednesday, it was to the point where my mother and I could not take care of him. And even hospice couldn't take care of him. They literally told us, um, that evening on Wednesday night, the 27th of April, you need to come off hospice and take him to the hospital. He's getting worse. And she basically said, as a human, not your hospice, you know, person, this is what I would, this is what I would, this is what I'm telling you you should do. And that's what we did. And from there, it was just another nightmare going into the hospital. Well, let me back you up a second. Um, At one point, I think on the 30th of April, that Wednesday, um, a nurse comes up and they're looking at the catheter and we talk about the catheter. Yeah, that was actually on Monday. Um, okay. We had the the primary last uh, on the Friday before when they called about the meds, said to us that his catheter should be changed. And when the nurse came in on Friday, we had uh, one nurse that came in every day, and then we had one that would come in every other day, and she would help with cleaning my dad, washing him up, clipping his nails, you know, washing his hair, you know, that kind of stuff to help out with my mom and I. And um, they were both there at the same time. And the nurse during the day uh, that came in on Friday said, mm, I am not real comfortable changing a catheter. And he didn't even have one on him to change it. And um, he looked at the other nurse and said, and, and she was not certified, I guess, to do that kind of thing. And she just looked at him and she was like, uh, I'm not certified to even touch that. Like, I can't even help you. I'm not allowed to do that. So he said, okay. And he's like, well, let me see if I can go find a catheter at the office. He never showed back up. He came back in on Saturday, um, 
said that there wasn't anything for him to do, um, and he wasn't comfortable changing the catheter. He hadn't done one in a long time, and so they would have to have a different nurse come over. We never got a nurse sent to us until Monday evening, and she came in somewhere around 8, I guess, on that, the following Monday. So he went from Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday evening was when we got the catheter changed, which now he's a very bad bladder, I mean, a urinary tract infection, and we still have a, a, a catheter that's not working, you know, that is more, it has the infection in it. So it's not helping in any way. So Monday night she came in and it took her, I think it was like two or three times. I want to say it was like three times. She couldn't even get it in correctly. Um, and she... I'm just imagining might, the pain that your poor dad was in and the confusion and the fear that somebody is doing something and that they can't do and how yeah. uncomfortable that had to have been for him. It was. It was horrible. And when he came, yeah. when they, he was in the bedroom when they changed it, and then he got in the wheelchair, we wheeled him back out, put him in the chair because he wanted to be up. But he wasn't, his, the cipro was really starting to kick in Monday night into Tuesday. Um, the side effects were really kicking in. And um, when he sat in the chair Monday night, um, I asked her before she left, and I was like, hey, I'm like, his penis is bleeding. I'm like, is, is that supposed to do that? Because he didn't wear shorts. He didn't have shorts on. And she was like, yeah, sometimes that happens when you put it in. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, one more thing that I don't know about, but okay. In hindsight, I wish I had said more, but I didn't. Um, and, and I knew that the tube, the, it was really short, and the tape on his leg where the tube went down his leg and then over to, to, the, to the Foley was um, very short. It, was, it wasn't real long, and the tube definitely from his penis to his leg where it was taped um, looked short, and it looked like it was pulling. So yes. I questioned it, but she was like, no, you know, it's just the way it is. I said, okay. So that was that. Well, he got worse on Monday night into Tuesday, and we ended up having to call the nurse. I think it was like 2, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, and we didn't know what to do. His blood sugars had dropped um, really low. He, was, he didn't want to eat for us. He, would, he didn't even want orange juice, um, nothing. So she came back, um, got him to eat some pudding, um, and then from there – um, I had asked about the sugars when she first walked through the door and I was like, you know, he won't, he won't even let us give him his meds for, you know, for his, for his diabetes. And I said, his sugars are dropping really low. What do we do? And she physically said to me, there'll be a point that we don't use these medications any longer that it just, it's, you know, we don't care about them. And I, I swear that's what her words were. We just, you know, and she goes, and you will eventually see that she goes, but to us, it's not a big deal. His sugars drop. Well, you know, I've had my dad in my house for two years now. I think I've learned quite a bit. And his diabetic specialist was like, uh, you never let him drop below 70, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And he said, if it does, you need to call us or run him to emergency. Well, his, And it, it is a his, big deal. It's it a very a big, big deal. deal for the family. Absolutely. So she ended up getting him to eat a little bit. His sugar levels went up. He decided he wanted to go to bed. We put him in bed. Um, but mom, mom and I were up with him all night. Now we're going into Tuesday. We're waiting all day. Nobody from hospice shows up at all. I'm calling the management. She's in Boston at some seminar, and she's driving back. It's 8 o'clock at night, and her and I are having a text argument. And then I'm like, you know, this isn't working for me. Can you please just call me? So then we spent 45 minutes on the phone, and I'm just like, you know, since we've hired you, it's been one thing after another. What is wrong with you people in your agency? I don't get it. You were supposed to help us, and I am – more stressed and sleep deprived than I've ever been before you came into our lives. You know, it's just, it's been a nightmare. 
So, and my dad is getting worse. Um, and the Cipro is really kicking in. And then nobody shows up Tuesday. Then Wednesday, we get this girl that shows up at 10 o'clock in the morning. She was there until 2 in the afternoon. She went through my dad's every single med he was on. She was on the computer with her little tablet contacting his primary, his heart doctor, uh, the other doctor at the hospital, um, getting all his information, taking, saying, why is he on this? He doesn't need to be on this. this you know, just cleaning house and going above management and getting things. She they told us that they would give us in-home volunteer, like volunteers who come over and help and maybe sit overnight so that one night a week or two nights a week we can actually get some sleep. And um, that never happened. She made it happen that day. I already had somebody calling me that day. Like she's the only one that did anything out of everybody in a, three, in a 21-day period. So from there, um, she changed his – didn't change the catheter, but changed, you know, emptied his bag – and from that moment after she left, his bag never moved. His, he never had any urine go into the bag. And what was there was enough to, sh- to fill a shot glass. He was moaning and groaning. He couldn't move his arms or legs. The Cipro had really kicked in. He had such bad diarrhea. It was so bad. Um, just, just, just horrible cleaning him. It took my husband, my mother, and I two hours to clean him. It was just horrible. Uh, we mm-hmm. ended up calling the night nurse again. She comes in. He had another episode, and she just looked at me, and she's like, I have never seen anything like this happen. She's like, honestly, Kelly, you need to come off services and take him to, to emergency. He's, he, you know, we can't help him at this point. So that's what we she did. She showed compassion. She did. She did. Yes. That one. Yes. That, mm-hmm. Exactly. That one. Mm-hmm. So we took him off hospice. We took him into the hospital. We got him to the hospital. Um and within that time now, we're talking April 27th, I think we're somewhere around. And the, and I know we have to, we only have a little bit more time, so I'm going to try and shoot the hospital. I just want to hit the high points of what happened in the hospitals because I want everyone to be aware of how hospitals work right now. Um, the 27th, he went in. The 28th on Thursday, he was wheeled from emergency up to cardiac floor six. Before he went up there, I met with a, bu- a bunch of different people. When we first got to emergency, the doctor was assessing him. She said the catheter that was in him was the wrong catheter and the wrong size. She was like, that was one thing she wanted out immediately. Um, she also thought that possibly that his kidneys were shutting down because he had no fluid coming out of him. So, you know, uh, that's not something you want to hear. And, you know, I broke down crying a little bit and I was like, oh, boy. Sure. Um, but she's like, you know, I'm going to do further investigation. We're going to run labs. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And we'll know more soon. And that's how it was. No, I've been up for. It didn't. Go ahead. The, when they did change the catheter, didn't the urine go everywhere because it had it been did. blocked up it did. by the other yep. one? Okay. Yep. There was a yeah. great nurse who um, she was told to do it. She did a bladder scan on him. I was sitting right in the room. I was holding his hand. Um, he was moaning and groaning, but in, in and out, talking a little bit, and then, you know, falling right back to sleep. And the nurse did a bladder scan, and the next thing I know, she starts to take out the catheter, and then she's like, oh, my God. And she, like, hit the the radio that she had on her shoulder, and she called for another nurse to come in or whoever to come in. I know I can't use names. I know the name. But anyway, she called for that person to come in. And she said, "Uh, I've never had this happen. She goes, urine's coming out everywhere. And I was like, and I spoke up and go, oh, my gosh, if it wasn't in the scan, where was it? Where in his body? You know, exactly. 
where was it backing up to that this man hadn't had hardly enough to fill a shot glass from 2 o'clock the day before until, I don't know, we're talking 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning at this point, 4 in the morning, the following day, going into Thursday? You know, right. where, was, where was all this fluid in his urine? So, and nobody really gave me a clear answer on that, but um, so they ended up putting a new catheter in, and that bag, that Foley bag filled up so fast. It was like, boom, and they had to change the bag real quick, um, yeah, empty it out. And then from there, you know, they're doing tests, and um, we're starting to get, you know, some information back, and, you know, the doctor's coming in and out and talking with me, the emergency doctor is talking to me. She was wonderful. Um, and then, I don't know, palliative care comes down later in the afternoon. They meet with me for about an hour and a half. And as I'm leaving that meeting, I go back to his room because they tell me he's going to be moved up to the cardiac floor. And so when I get there, they're getting ready to administer remdesivir. And we all know about remdesivir. At least I know the Patriots do. And um, right. so bad stuff, bad stuff, bad, bad stuff. And all the other seven generic you know, brand names for it. And I looked at the nurse and said, no, you are not giving him remdesivir. And I said, why are you giving him remdesivir? And she was like, well, he tested positive for COVID. And I said, he what? I'm like, how in the heck does he have COVID? So she, I said, no, you're not giving it to him. So, and I'm his advocate. I'm on all his paperwork, all the doctors, nurses, everyone calls me and has been for two years. Um, so I refused it. And at the time I'm refusing it, she's rolling her eyes and has a, you know, hanging it up on the IV kind of stand thing. And there's two guys in the room, and they're wrapping up cords, and they're getting ready to haul him out of the room and go upstairs to cardiac six. So I follow up. I go up into the room with him. As I'm walking out of the elevator closer to his, the room they're putting him in, I am met by the charge nurse, who then proceeds to tell me all the procedures, because he's COVID positive, of what we are going to do as a family now. Uh, before you could have two people visit with or without COVID. Now it's only one person has to be designated, um, which we designated my mom because if something happened to him while he was there, we wanted my mom to be there. So now at, at this time I'm being met with a charge nurse telling me this information. I haven't, I've been awake for over 40-something hours at this point. It's been almost like two days that I have not had any sleep. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I've barely eaten. Um, and I'm being met by this person I've never met before who's kind of in my face saying, um, yes, from here forward, um, whoever you designate, they can come in for a 24-hour period. But if they leave in that 24-hour period, they have to call security. Security has to walk them downstairs, out the door. And when they come back the following day, because you can't, you can't come back the same twice in the same day, you have to check in at the security desk, and security has to walk you up to the room. You cannot use the outside facility bathrooms. You cannot go to the, um, the cafeteria. Um, you can only go in the room with him, and you have to gown up. You have to wear gloves. You have to wear booties, and you have to wear a mask on your face. And, a and shield, this is 20. You. This is, I just want to comment, this is 2022. Correct. So it's this not like not it's the beginning of COVID. It is 2022, two years into COVID. This is what we right. are met with. So my exactly. mother, right. at this point, my mother's at the hospital. She's walking in on the conversation. So the lady had to kind of repeat herself to tell my mother everything. Um, we are also told that you cannot have any food in the room. You cannot have any drink in the room. If you are caught with food or drink in his room, you will, ask, you will be asked to leave. This is what we were told. 
So I said, okay. And I really had no life left in me. And I said, I got to leave. And I just looked at my mother and she's like, I'll take over from here. So I went home and, um, that was Thursday. So my mom that, you know, it's Thursday. I think it was by five, six o'clock. They had taken him up to cardiac six and my mom met me at the hospital. And then I left that evening on Thursday evening. And that's what we were met with. So we said, okay, we will abide by your rules. And so mom went in the room and I went home. And then from there, it was just a nightmare from there forward with the hospital. So I'm going to do a brief description of that. Dad was in the hospital Friday afternoon. We get a phone call. So he's been there a day and a half. And they tell us that they're moving him. It's two in the afternoon. They're moving him to, um, I can't tell you the floor name, but it was a name number three. And um, it's all COVID patients. And they said, when we get him there, you can come in and see him. Now, mom, all her times that she's been at that hospital, always goes in between 2 and 3 in the afternoon and stays till 8, 9 o'clock at night. You know, for two years, every time he went in the hospital, that was kind of her, her, her regimen. Um, and stayed with him until he goes back, you know, goes to sleep at night. Um, has, you know, lunch and dinner with him and then goes, leaves when he starts to go to bed. So they tell us not to, they tell my mother not to come in. So she's like, okay, well, what time should I come in? And they said, you know, he should be moved by 6, 6.30. She goes in, and she is met by security, when, you know, because she has to ask for security every time she goes there, um, that he's been moved to this section, and there are no visitors, period. Now, my dad is on Cipro. He can't move his arms, his legs. His blood sugars are at 500. IV. He's on a Cipro IV. Right. He's moved from the pill format to an IV injection through his body. So they're running a very high dose of Cipro, which is a very, 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 very bad. Um, He's delusional. He can't make decisions on his own. He can't talk. Um, He is now being moved. And mom said, uh, I I even have power of attorney. We had that done way back when he had his heart attack before he moved. We had everything done through lawyers. She's like, I am his voice. And they said, well, uh, you can't see him. And mom was saying, I want to talk to somebody in higher command, you know, in the hospital. So they send down the nurse from that floor, the charge nurse. And she's like, uh, no, nobody can go back there. He's COVID positive. And mom's like, well, I've been with him for the last day and a half in his hospital room. And they're like, you've been in his room at, on cardiac six. And she's like, yeah, I've been there, you know, off and on for the last few days. And they're like, oh, we have to research this. So they leave. They tell my mother to wait. It's 7 o'clock at night on a Friday night. Now, my mom left at 6 or 6.30. I'm thinking the whole night she's with my father. At 10 of 10, I get a phone call from my dad calling, going, where's your mother? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, she's not with you? And he's like, no. He's like, they've been moving me around all day. I haven't had anything to eat. I barely could call you. I couldn't find your number. I'm like, you know, he said, I finally saw it up on the board because I'm up on the whiteboard. I'm the person that they're supposed to call for everything. And he's like, I just want to see your mom. They told me she's here, but I haven't seen her. So now I'm panicking. Okay, we've had the week from hell. We've had three weeks prior to that from hell. It's Friday night. They're moving my dad all around. Nobody seems to know who he is or where he is. They left my mother in a lobby, which is what I found out afterwards. For six hours, my mother sat on a chair waiting for my father to go see my father. And nobody came back to get her. And, of course, at 75 years old, you're old school. When you're told to do something, they do it. They don't question it. They sit right there. They don't move. And um, when my dad called, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, she's been attacked in the parking lot. Or, you know, she's passed out in the bathroom somewhere and nobody knows where she is. You know, millions. Million Everything goes through head. your mind. Right. Absolutely. 
So then I'm calling her cell phone. My husband gets on the phone. He's calling the hospital trying to find out where they are. Nobody in the COVID section floor knows where he is, never heard of his name. So he's calling now back to Cardiac 6. Nobody up there knows who he is. It's crazy. We can't find out where this man is. And then nobody knows my mother. So I'm calling her cell phone, going right to voicemail, going right to voicemail. So long story short, she woke up in the lobby at 10:15 in the evening. So she had been there since like 6:30, I think, that night. Um, wakes up in the lobby, upset that nobody came to get her. So she goes up to try and find dad. Um, they had told her previously. Actually, I should back it up. At seven o'clock, they said we need to research this. They did come back around 7:30-ish, somewhere around there, and said, "Yep, you're right." Um, but this is our problem. We've moved him to the COVID floor even though he was already in a COVID-approved private room on Cardiac 6, which they have four, four rooms designated for COVID patients on Cardiac 6, they said he, they don't have enough staff to take care of him. He's way sick. He, uh, his blood sugars were at 500. We don't have enough people to monitor him. This medication's really doing a doozy on him, and we're sending him back to Cardiac 6. So my mom was waiting and waiting and waiting for them to now send him back to cardiac six and then nobody came to get her. So she goes up when she woke up, she goes upstairs, is asking around to see him. Nobody knows who he is. She's waiting for people to come and tell her where he is. A nurse finally says, yep, he's in the room, but you need to wear a mask, an N95, which she'd never had to wear before. It was just a normal mask. So this is an N95 trapped, you know, stuck to her face. She hasn't slept all week. She's tired. They're having her gown up at 10, 15 at night, 10, 20 at night to go in and, and see him. And in the, in the meantime, I don't know this is happening with her. I get another call a little after 10 o'clock from my dad crying more saying, where's your mom? She's still not here. And at this point, I had no idea my mom had gone up to the floor. So it was like nobody knew where mom was. So long story short, she got all in the gowns and the gloves and the boots and the mask and the, you know, the headgear and she can't do it. She's ready to pass out. She said she kind of collapsed up against the window. She was having a panic attack and she's like, I can't do that. So she leaves. So then she undresses, she goes down to the car. She calls me to say she's coming home. And I said, Hey, dad's been calling for you. And she goes, what do you mean? They told me he was sleeping. I tried to just see him and I couldn't do it. So she's like, so she starts crying. She says, I'm going to go back up and try and, and put everything back on again. She goes back up, tries to do it, can't do it. She's having claustrophobic. She's having a panic attack. She can't do it. She leaves. She gets home at like 1130 at night. Now, she's 75 years old, and my dad is 78. At this point, my dad didn't call back that night. She comes home. She tells me the whole fiasco of what happened. Well, from there, the whole weekend was trying to find out who made this decision to move him. Why were they not looking at his medical records? Why wasn't the doctor consulted? Who made the decision to move him from where he was comfortable in one room, getting perfect care in a COVID-approved room, to move him to a different floor? And to this day, I've gone through four management people at that hospital, and they all deflect and tell me that that's not my person. They're not allowed to give me that information, nor are they going to give me that information. To this day, I still don't know who made this decision. Um, And on that weekend, the following day on Saturday, Dad called said called us we're having breakfast so now we're into saturday we are get a call from dad we're all, my husband myself my sister and my mom we're all sitting at the breakfast table uh we are told dad's telling us um do you think you could call the nurse's station um i dropped my buzzer you can't call for any any room for any help 
um, which is the cord that has the, the buzzer thing on it, and it's wrapped usually around, like, you know, the side rails of the hospital right. bed. And he can't call anybody. All he wants is some water. And he's like, could you just have somebody bring me some water? So I was like, oh, my God. And he was crying. So I was like, yeah, Dad, we, you know, we'll do that. So we talked to him for a few minutes. I hung up. I called the nurse. The nurse is some, I'm not going to say the name, but she answers the phone, says her name. And um, I said, yeah, I said, my dad just called and I'm, you know, he's looking for some water. He said, nobody's been in, you know, he dropped his buzzer on the floor. He can't reach it. He could reach the phone. So he called me and I'm like, do you mind going in and just giving him some water? And she's like, absolutely. She's like, I will go right in in a few minutes. And I said, yeah. And I said, has he have his, has he had his happy pill yet today? Cause he can be cranky. And, and then she said, oh yeah. And she goes, he called me a B-I-T-C-H last, you know, and I straightened his ass out. Well, when you're calling on a Saturday morning to talk to a nurse to see if you can pick the buzzer up so my dad can get help and to bring him some water and a nurse tells you that over the phone, that's pretty much the last thing you want to hear. Exactly. I was not pleased to hear that. Whether she was doing it jokingly or not, she didn't laugh, didn't sound, her voice didn't change, like, you know, high-pitched, yeah, yeah, you know, I straightened his ass. I'm I'm not swearing, trying to swear, but that's how she said it to me. That's okay. So. That happened on Saturday. So when the doctor calls, they call me. I'm his advocate. So from every doctor that worked with him for the three weeks he was in the hospital, 25 days in the hospital before he died, every single week you get a new doctor on cardiac six. Every single week, doctor changing his meds, doing this, doing that, you always would get a daily update. They always called my phone. On Saturday, the doctor calls me. I tell him what happened on Friday, the fiasco with, you know, moving him around. Why would you be doing that? Who makes these decisions? He basically said he didn't know. And he told me that, you know, you probably shouldn't even pursue finding out, he says, because, you know, it's really not worth it. So he was basically telling me to shut up and mind my own business and to not investigate any further. And Mm -hmm. when somebody tells me that, I'm like, "Uh -uh 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 -uh." uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. So that was Saturday. Now we're into Sunday. Sunday, we get another call from my dad that morning, and he's crying. And we're like, why are you crying today, Dad? And he's like, well, I just wanted to let you know that so-and-so won't be here for the next 10 days, and I'm super happy. I found out she will not be here. And we were like, oh, okay. You know, and we just thought he was being emotional because he'd been sick, you know, on this heavy, potent drug for his urinary tract infection. We get it. You know, you've been through a lot in the last week or so. Um, but come to find out, um, she I don't think she was a very good nurse. I don't think he trusted her. So Monday comes, and we, uh, I talked to the palliative care doctor, and I said, can we have a meeting? Like, I need to understand what's going on with this hospital. I'm not happy with some of the things that are going on. You know, did you know this happened on Friday night? Who's making these decisions? Da, 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 da. So he says, why don't you come in? We'll have a meeting. So we went in at noontime. I get to the hospital. Now we're on Monday. We get into the hospital. My dad is sitting on a chair, talking like you and I are doing right now, and he's shooting the breeze with the doctor and laughing and you know they've taken him off the cipro he's starting to feel a lot better they're getting ready to give him physical therapy um possibly a move to a physical skilled facility so that he can get his you know get his strength back and they're looking at releasing him the following following week end or beginning of the following week if all goes well so we're like great we go to get get ready for the meeting the doctor the nurse myself and my mom and we go to help, they help pick my dad up from the chair and put him into the, his bed. And his legs are bandaged. And his legs go straight on the bed. And all of us at the same time saw the same thing. He had a metal 
fork hidden in his bandages. And I just looked at the doctor. The doctor looked at me. Everyone looked at each other. And I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, why do you have a fork in your leg down in in your bandages? And he goes, for protection. He was not feeling safe in this hospital. No, he wasn't. And he was smart enough, even under all the medications he was on and the sickness he was going through, to have something to protect to, himself. To protect himself, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So then we leave the room because I'm, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, they're never going to give him silverware again. You know, they're going to give him all plastic from here forward. Um, who knows what they were thinking. We go to have this meeting, and the doctor, you know, we talked about that. We talked about his potential care down the road, how long he might be in a skilled facility, um, getting physical therapy starting this week so that somebody comes to his room. Um, he was ordering all sorts of stuff. Now, this is the palliative care, the good doctor that I loved. And um, and then going through management, he had management there. And I wanted answers as to who was making decisions, why they were making these moves um, for a man who's this sick and moving him to a different floor when he was already on a floor that he was being taken care of in a COVID-approved room. Well, Nobody could give me an answer. Tuesday, they said they'd get back to me on Tuesday. They all kept looking at their watches except for the doctor. He spent five hours with us that day. He never looked at his watch once. The management and nurses all leave. He leaves with us. We go back to Dad's room. I give Dad a hug. I leave. Um, and my mom stayed with him. Dad's fine. He's talking just like we are now. He's being slowly taken off the Cipro. He's starting to feel a lot better. Tuesday comes. I'm dealing with management, feeling phone calls, and everyone keeps deflecting. Oh, you're going to have to talk to this person. You're going to have to talk to that person. You're going to have to talk to this. And once I get them on the phone, they all tell me, oh, you need to talk. Well, okay, well, who can I get the answer from? Three people. Um, And finally, the last person I spoke with, I said, who made the decision to move my father over the weekend? Somebody has to have an answer. And I was being super professional, very nice and calm, which sometimes I have a hard time doing. But they, they really literally just, you know, kept deflecting. And finally, the lady, the last lady I spoke with said, you would need to speak to so-and-so. And I said, well, who is that? And what is his number? Or, you know, what is his department or whatever? What is his status at the hospital? She basically told me to call the vice president of the hospital. And I said, well, do you have a number for him? And she goes, no, you can look it up. And she basically hung up on me on the phone. I swear to God, that's what we dealt with. They From were not going to week- tell you anything. No. And from that week forward, now when you as a, as a concerned family member start questioning what their authority is or what they do in that hospital or how things work or you're questioning the system, they shut you down faster than you can blink and they make your life a living hell. And that's mm-hmm. what they did for the remainder two and a half weeks that my father lived. And the whole, it was just one thing after another. Um, the nurses are all traveling nurses. They're short-staffed. short short-staffed. Um, There were many times Dad would try to use the bathroom, and they wouldn't leave the room. They're standing there with their arms folded that week, and Dad's, you know, like, you know, can you just give me a couple minutes to go to the bathroom? Uh, I know, Paul, do you, you're not the only patient in the hospital. You know, can you just hurry it up? Like, just rudeness. Now, they did this in front of my mother. My mother was there mm-hmm. every single day. This is the things that she would see and hear from nurses, from their mouths. Just like, you know, how do you, it's like telling a dog to go to the bathroom on command. You know, it doesn't always happen. And all the medications he's been on, he was, you know, he couldn't go to the bathroom as, you know what I mean? Like, it was just horrible. So 
we're going into now the second week. It's Wednesday. I get a phone call from the doctor. Now, we had a big meeting on Monday, right? Wednesday, I get a call from the doctor who was assigned to my dad that week, and I'm told he only had, like, I think two or three more days left on his COVID quarantine because he was in quarantine for 10 days. And they call me, and they say, um, yes, Mrs. Parker, I just want to give you an update on your dad or Mrs. Phoebe. And they're telling me that um, he's doing a lot better. You know, he's talking a lot more. He's eating a lot better. He's coming off the meds, you know, da-da-da-da. We're very, you know, we're very excited. We're looking at releasing him possibly next Monday. And we're like, great. So he'll be able to go to a skilled facility. Well, no, that's the bad news. And I'm like, well, why isn't he going to a skilled facility? Well, they – is the word that he used, have made a decision that um, they're going to keep him on quarantine for another 10 days until May 18th. And I said, why? I'm like, can't you just do another COVID test? And, you know, does he have it? Does he not have it? You know? Well, his oxygen levels are between a four and a five right now. And when he's home, um, it's in his medical records that he's usually on a two or three when he takes the oxygen. And because he is COVID positive, we are, because his oxygen is not, back to his normal oxygen levels, we're going to keep him in quarantine for another 10 days. And I was like, well, that's weird. And I was like, well, is there somebody I can talk to? Like, is there somebody at the hospital that, you know, can do another COVID test? Oh, no, we don't do another COVID test. Well, what do you mean you don't do a COVID test? Well, we don't do that. He already had one, and he's positive, and they feel he needs to be extended for another 10 days. And I don't know to this day who they were, who the word they is, but that's what I was told. Mm-hmm. So I'm I like, need, okay, now I'm, I'm, go ahead. I, I need you to go because you're, you're running short on time. So I need you to go to um, May CDC? the 10th, May the 8th, 9th. Yeah. Well, yeah, yep. CDC first. And then, so the um, same day that the doctor told me they were putting him on an extra 10-day quarantine, CDC calls me out of the blue. And it's a young lady on the phone, and she's like, hi, this is so-and-so. I'm calling from CDC. And I was like, oh, great, because I have a lot of questions for you. So I'm driving while we're talking to her, while I'm talking to her, and I didn't ask the question, why were you calling, and two, how did you have my father's medical records? But either way, that's uh, after the fact. She's calling me to ask me some questions, and in the meantime, I'm asking her questions. While we're on the phone, I'm telling her that doctor just called me earlier, about an hour ago, before her phone call, and said, hey, you know, we're extending your dad's quarantine. So I said, what is CDC guidelines for testing in hospitals? And she said five business, five days. So if you're tested for COVID and you're positive, within five days they're supposed to test you again. And if they don't and a family member requests it, the hospital is supposed to do it. This is what she tells me on the phone. And then she's like, you know, this is really strange. I have your dad's medical records here, and there is nothing showing he's COVID positive, not even in his blood work. And I was like, really? And I was like, is that something you can share with me? And she said, yeah. And I said, and, and the CDC guidelines, is that something you can email to me? And she said, absolutely. She said, let me talk with my management in the morning, because it's like 5 o'clock at night when she's her, she called me just a little bit before 5. We talked for till after, after 5, and she emails me right after we hung up. I saw the email come in, and she's like, you know, per our conversation, da 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 So when I got home that night, my mom gets home from the hospital, and I'm telling her that CDC called and they said, hey, you know, your dad doesn't even have anything in here that shows he's COVID positive. And I said, she's going to be sending me the paperwork and, you know, the information tomorrow. And, and then my mom turns around and looks at me and she goes, uh, so why, why was she calling you? And I said, you know, I don't, she never told me. And then she's like, well, who sent your dad's medical records to her? And I said, you know, she never told me that. 
So I responded to her email at like 11 o'clock at night and said, hey, you know, thank you very much for your phone call. I look forward to getting your information tomorrow. Um, I have two questions. Per our conversation, this is what we spoke about. And then here are my two questions. Why did you call me originally? And two, who sent you my dad's medical records from the hospital? To this day, after three or four phone calls and three or four follow-up emails, CDC has never returned any answer to me on that. Nothing. Nothing. And they don't even return, like, and the email doesn't bounce back. It's a real email address. It is a real person, real phone number. It goes to this person at CDC. You know, probably why? Because then they get paid more money by saying that he did have COVID. Well, They're going to get more money. If, you, if I could share my medical records with him or his medical records with you, we, we went back from January 1st until May 22nd. Uh, there, I'm going to be a lawyer or a doctor by the time all this is done. The medical coding is so off. Like back in January, they tested him if he went into the hospital, you know, $38 for a COVID test. You know, in May, they charged 138 for it. Yeah. Like, you're you're going to have to skip, Kelly, you've got to skip ahead or you're not going to get to okay. the end of the story. So uh, anyway, long story short, that's that week. Going into the following weekend, Dad, they let his blood sugars from Sunday to Monday drop to 45, which put him in a tizzy for an entire week. He couldn't talk. He couldn't eat. It completely shocked his body. Um, and he was doing great. He was, they were getting ready to release him. And now Sunday into Monday, he's doing horrible again. And then that week we find out, because he'd been having belly issues, they finally did a scan, and we found out that he had a lower bowel perforation which means he has a hole in his bowel, and he is now sepsis, and nobody knows how it got there. Right. And they want to do a tube into his belly to drain the poison. So in the fact of him coming off, uh, having his blood sugars drop to 45, which who does that? And they say that they don't watch your blood sugar level overnight. He drops to 45. Nobody called us. My mom went in on Monday afternoon, like she normally does, and found him, uh, like, canatonic in a bed. It was horrible. She calls me crying, going, they let your dad's blood sugars drop. So it took until Thursday for him to start coming out of that shock. Thursday, they did the belly scan. We are going into somewhere around the 18th of May now, 19th, uh, about the, no, I'm, I'm sorry, about the 14th or 15th 15th. of May. Yep. Um, they found some issues. They wanted to do another scan, an actual scan on him. So they took him down on Friday. They did a COVID test on Friday. They come back with the results and they say, yep, he needs to have a tube. The doctor calls, tells us he's sepsis. And so now we know that his time is very limited with us. We don't know how this happened. Nobody can tell us how this happened. I can probably tell you how it happened, but you know, proving Mm -hmm. that is a whole different thing from hospice. And, um, they tell us that he needs to have a procedure on Monday. They did a COVID test. The doctor calls me on Saturday afternoon at 3.30 in the afternoon that Saturday and says, yep, your dad has a very minute trace of, and he said, you know, people with COVID, it can sit in their lungs for weeks and weeks. He said, so he'll be strong enough. They're going to go ahead and do the procedure on Monday. And I said, great, that's great news. So Monday comes and we get a call at 8.15 in the morning. And my dad has fallen out of bed, and he broke his face, and nobody knows how he fell out of his bed. And that was a Sunday into Monday going into the procedure he was supposed to have. He had bruises all over his face. It looked like somebody had taken something and just hit him really hard on his left side of his face, and his nose was broken, and 
his left eye was really swollen, and I have pictures of everything. Yeah. And uh, they said, we don't know how this happened. And for whatever reason, the night nurse from Sunday into Monday called my mother's phone, and they never in two years have called my mother's phone. And she never has it. They always call me, and I sleep with my phone. They never called until teen on Monday morning to let me know he'd fallen out of bed. And I asked the nurse right then and there, why, well, how did this happen? Has he been assessed by a doctor? You know, is he okay? What's going on? And I had him on speaker, and I wasn't expecting that to happen. And my mother is now screaming behind me, collapsing to the floor, going, I, I trusted you with him. When I left you last night at 9 o'clock at night, you were washing him up, you and so-and-so. And I reminded you, put the bed rails back up. He can't, you know, he, I don't want him falling out of bed. You promised me you would do that. How did he fall out of bed? And he, so the nurse on the phone, and I'm like, why didn't somebody call us? When did this happen? He said, about 4 o'clock this morning. And I was like, so why didn't somebody call me? He goes, we did. We called your mom. I said, why would you call my mom? You, everyone calls me. So anyway, long story short, he says to us over the phone, a doctor has not assessed him. He deemed it inappropriate for a doctor to be called at four in the morning. He assessed him. And then the, uh, one of the attending doctors ordered the CAT scan for my dad to have a, a head check for a CAT scan. That being said, we get dressed immediately. We go to the hospital. We meet with the doctor, you know, the good doctor, the palliative care doctor. And that doctor is telling us, um, you know, this should have never happened. I can't believe this happened. You guys, I, since meeting you, the whole system is broken. And I never knew how broken it was until I've met you and your family. There's been one thing after another. And he said, you have so opened my eyes to how poorly this hospital is being run. And yeah. We wanted answers, and this doctor was awesome, and I will back it up. The Thursday before my father fell out of the bed going into that weekend, he took my mother in the hallway because he didn't feel comfortable talking in front of one of the nurses. And he looked up, and he kept looking at the intercom. They listened to you through the intercom service, and he made it very apparent while his hands were crossed and his leg was up against the wall, and my mother was talking, and he kept giving her, like, eye contact up over. She came home that night, and she goes, he was trying to tell me that they listened to you. And the other thing that happens is if you refuse medication in the hospital, they, they put it in the system, and they say, oh, Paul refused it. But it's how it's worded. So if a nurse right. goes in and says, hey, Paul, I'm, I'm going to check and see if you're clean, um, or do you want some of your meds? Do you want your meds? If you're drugged up and you don't really want anyone bothering you, you're going to say, no, I just want to sleep. Right. Hey, Paul, it's I time for you, your meds. I'm giving you your meds. Then I he need you to them. jump to Thursday the 19th. You've yep. got two so, minutes. To Thursday the 19th, uh, he gets the procedure. That Saturday, they say he has a, a minute trace. Um, he's, or the week before, I mean, the Thursday before, um, falls out of the bed on that Monday into Sunday, Tuesday. He never, he never really talked to any of us again. He made short little brief statements, yes, no kind of thing. He stopped eating on Wednesday, and he passed on Saturday. And, the, and they were giving him dilaudid every four to six hours, and then they upped it to every two hours. Correct. Yep. He right. never made it to actual full-blown morphine um, at that point, which I believe Delalude is just below um, that. But if there's anything I can tell anybody, oh, I, you have to advocate. And I, I wish I had more. I, we had three hours to sit here and talk on this. It's just it's amazing what I went through. And 
you know, and every night, you know, the night that he passed, the morning, the next day that he passed, I was the last person with him before he fell asleep. And I told him he could go. And I and the last few words he said to me, and I can't, that's what haunts me, is I can't understand if he was saying, God, help me, or, you know, or I need, I, how did he say it, something about water. Um, I, I can't remember. It was something to do with water, or God, help me, or God, uh, I don't remember how it was. But I kept telling my mom, I'm like, is he asking for water? Like, I don't, it, it was just so hard, and that's what haunts me. We don't know what was going on from 8 or 9 o'clock at night until 2 the next no, day. No. They weren't going in and giving him water. They weren't taking care of him. I, I've asked for the – I wanted the cameras, the medical records. The doctor went through with the nurse when he fell that morning. The, no, the, the, the nurse's notes in that hospital time-stamped at 414. How do you find a man on the floor, 250 pounds, broken face, blood everywhere, on the floor – get him off the floor, assess him, get him down to a scan, fix a catheter that ripped out of your body, possibly, because nobody can answer that because it should, it, theoretically, the doctor said, yes, it would have come out of him if he fell to the left of the bed, which is what they say. It, how do you do but all the medical that? records, didn't the medical records state that he fell off the toilet? No, the medical records say that he fell off the bed. But we, when, the bed. Okay. when my dad passed away, we uh, no, actually, it says that he had a fall. It doesn't say exactly what it was. We've been asking for three times. I've asked for the nurse's notes. Okay. Um, so from this point, you're we're out of time. But you're going forward, and you're going to let your voice be heard over and over again, and so that the audience knows this is what is going on. It's not one person. It's all of us. And it's no, kind there's of the many story. Hospitals and hospices. And I would tell you, do your research. I thought I did my research asking questions prior to. I thought I was pretty up-to-date on things and knew what was going on in the world right now. I knew nothing. These people are, it's ruthless what they're doing. And, and, and you know, we are pretty, my mom and I were with him as much as we possibly could. But what's, what is the family that doesn't have someone like me and my mother? What are they going through? Who is advocating for them? Little, you know, little Joe Blow and little Joe Mary, who their husband Nobody. gets released. And the next thing you know, three days into hospice, and they're already giving you morphine and all these drugs to kill you. It, it, it's not cool. And it's they die. On. So thank you so much for coming on tonight, Kelly. And oh, I thank so you. I hope I didn't wasn't too much of a scatterbrain. So. And anyone can reach out to me at any time. Honestly, look me up. I'm around. Email me. I want to do more. I want my voice to be heard. I want my dad's story to be heard. And we will get to the bottom of it. You know, it's well, going to take some time. Well, you've let people know tonight you know what happened so thank you and thank you to our audience and we will be back next week with another tragic tale good night everybody thank you good night kelly